I know this is a low bar, but Bjorn is the most glamorous environmentalist. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. The New York City mayor just today says he's requiring everybody uh, by the middle of December need to start getting everybody vaccinated. Listen to the mayor. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It is the Ricochet Podcast. James Lilac is off this week. I'm Rob Long and our guest, Bjorn Lomborg, and our favorite Law professor John Yu. Let's have a podcast. I can hear you. Hello and welcome to the Ricochet Podcast, episode 572. If the, my voice sounds different, it's because I am not James Lilix and I don't talk like this on the radio. I'm just Rob Long doing the podcast as we used to do old school OG with my OG co founder of Ricochet, Peter Robinson. In Palo Alto, Peter, how are you? I'm fine. You just named my location. You're in Milan, Italy. I'm in Milan, Italy. Well, you know, I had a free ticket, and I was going to do. I spent a week in uh, in Budapest, and I uh, just sort of like had this gap between Budapest and my free ticket. So I thought, oh, you know, just I'll just head on over to Milan. Um, And it's pretty cool. Like it's like um, same thing in Budapest. I mean, Europe seems like um, it's Christmas here. Everybody's like out, and stores are open on Sundays, and people are shopping, and things are crowded, and everybody's wearing a mask, but everybody seems to be carrying big shopping bags. So maybe, maybe it's maybe the world isn't doomed. So you spent a month now in Europe, almost. It's close, three weeks. So it's like a week in France, and a uh, and then a week with the family in Spain, and then five, six days uh, in Budapest, and now three or four days in Milan, and I fly home tomorrow. I mean, I'm sorry, fly home Wednesday. I see. Now, do you want to introduce our lurking guest, or shall you? Yeah, we have a lurking guest. I I want to hear about Budapest, too, by the way. Yeah. Okay. Uh, That's how it's going to go, John. You're second to Budapest. Uh, We are joined, (laughs) our co-host today, uh, and also, you know, he's going to start explaining some stuff to me, especially since I've been reading the newspaper. Uh, John Yu. He is Ricochet's senior Supreme Court analyst, uh, and he's obviously the, uh, the connoisseur of the McRib. He's the Emanuel Heller Professor of Law at the University of California at Berkeley, and I guarantee you there are probably 100 other faculty members at that law school trying to get him out. And he is here to talk about, I think probably, I mean, I don't know, am I, am I overstating it, Peter, the most consequential Supreme Court decision in 20, 30 years? Well, it could be, depending on how they decide. That's but even if, we'll, we'll, yeah. we'll let John tell But hold on. We'll get, to yeah, the, we'll get to Dobbs. We'll get to Dobbs. But first, Rob, yes. you know that Hungary is a fascist regime, I, that the, that the yeah. right-wing prime minister, Viktor Orban, who suppressed freedom of speech, captured the entire country's electoral system. Yeah. What were you doing in such a bad place? What's it, that's, that's, I was trying to convince I, it, them. Yeah. <laughs> the press on Viktor Orban is so uniformly negative that I suspect it's all wrong. Well, I'm, look, I, it's hard to know when it's all wrong. I have a rule when I go to somebody else's country. I have that rule in Cuba, too, which is I don't, you know, it's a very American thing. You arrive in the country and say, please denounce your government. And um, <laughs> it, no one's really going to do that. And um, even in Cuba, I talked to a dissident there who's famously a dissident. And even he was like, he didn't really want to run down his country in front of other people. Um, I get that. Uh, look, Viktor Orban is a crook. Oh, he is. Um, right. Almost surely a crook. Uh, I'm not sure um, if it goes beyond that or not. I think but there when, are probably. When you, say, when you say crook, do you mean right wing authoritarian or petty chiseler who's trying I mean, to make it's a, you know, rich? he's a petty chiseler crook. He's, a, he's, he's, he's on the grift. He's the grafter. He's, you know, uh, somehow he and his family own a lot more than they ever owned. You know, he's sort of like mm. makes LBJ with LBJ with blush. Um, <laughs> that said, it is a country that remembers communism un, without any fondness. And so they are I, – I never spoke to more um, ardent, um, sincere conservatives in my life. 
I, I, I maybe maybe in the Reagan days, but it really felt like I was talking to people, young people and medium and, and middle aged people and even old people who were just actually kind of excited about conservatism. Um, and, um, and so I didn't really push them on the Orban thing because I think that's like um, that wasn't really what I wanted to do. But I did ask him about conservatism. And they were very, very open uh, and really interested. And it's refreshing because I think a lot of – you know, I think a lot of conservatism in, um, in the United States has been um, tainted or st- uh, in some way distorted by politics, almost toxified by partisan politics. Um, and that isn't the case there, or at least wasn't the case there when I was talking because I didn't mention the, uh, the O word. Um, and I hope that they can maintain their – I hope they maintain their loyalty to the conservative ideals and not get distracted by, um, you know, a, a lo- a loyalties to people, I guess is what I'm so, – So conservatism, just to – John, dive in with questions of your own here. We'll get to Dobbs in a second. But conservatism, what form does this take when you – when you're having conversations in Budapest, they're, they're Hayek free marketeers or they're national conservatives and there's, they, have, there's a they little want to of that. reassert the yeah. uh, uh, Hungarian consciousness. What, what's, yeah. there's a, there are all kinds there, of things it might mean, right? There, there's a little of that. There's a little of the of – the, look, you know, the, I'm trying to thread a needle here because the rap on Orban is that he is just an, you know, a, a, a nationalist, a con- conservative nationalist and with all of the weird – um, uh, the penumbra, to use a word that I know John loves, uh, <laughs> that 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 entails. Don't you emanate know, into my penumbra. Oh, I won't <laughs> emanate anywhere near you. Trust me. I mean, in the sense of like, uh, you know, the last popular nationalist figure in Central Europe was Adolf Hitler, and then the most recent one, just to the east, is uh, uh, Vladimir Putin. So there's there's that. There's also the sense that Hungarians are. Um, you know, they have this incredibly proud ancient culture. Uh, they've always been, <laughs> poor Hungarians, they've always been like kind of, you know, they had that brief moment where there was just so, they've always been over, the, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, there's a reason Austria came first. Right. Um, it wasn't just alphabetical. It wasn't just alphabetical. Um, so they are sort of experiencing a certain kind of, um, I don't know, cultural awakening maybe. Um and they do, I think, share with some members of, uh, of, of the politics of the, of the region the idea that maybe the West is decadent. Um, uh, uh, by the way, I share that myself. Yeah, and I don't. But, I, but, they, but well, I have to say, Robert Robinson, what are you West talking is about? Fantastic. The West is great. <laughs> yeah. But on the I other have, hand, I have they one are word engage- for you, Nick yeah. Rib. <laughs> yeah, they are engaging uh, in the argument. And they are engaging in the argument, and I had this incredibly spirited, fun uh, couple of hours talking to um, students at this uh, the Hillsdale of Hungary called the Matthias Provinus College, uh, which is more interesting and has a, a more interesting and committed um, program than any uh, American university. And I think if you were a conservative philanthropist, you would do – you could do um, – you could not do any better than just patterning your giving around building something like that in the United States. Anyway, that's what I so that so I, I thought I was really kind of energizing and kind of fun. And also, these are people who are really in, these are engaged in culture and culture conversations that I really I thought were great. It isn't the answer to Peter's question is that Orban really is a nationalist conser- of the, the conservative of the nationalist stripe. There, Hungary is not a free market paradise or a libertarian paradise. It's got rather strong central government and uh, it's now that's you know national conservatism know, example, is better than national socialism which they yes, tried in central Europe for a few years ago it's true work out. true the, the yes. question really yes. is uh, if Viktor Orban is a politician then all politicians lose elections even ones that you think shouldn't lose, they lose that's they right. lose elections um, you know the the the, the your political mandate is fleeting. You could be a great president, and you just kind of just don't make it. Um, the question is whether he, um, <laughs> you know, he's a he's a uh, democratic, uh, fr- uh, a conservative nationalist. If he leaves, if he doesn't leave, <laughs> right. he's not, and that is a, a a real problem. I think a real a real a real problem for them. 
I don't know whether it's going to happen or not, but I think it's a problem. My default position is this in sympathy. I don't know about Viktor Orban, but for the Hungarians. Yeah. Absorbed the Austro-Hungarian Empire. After the First World War, they lose two-thirds of their territory to Romania for reasons that still don't make much sense to me. But the, North, the Transylvania Mountains are still populated by people who speak Hungarian. Then come, along comes the Second World War. Well, in the interim, there's a, uh, there is a genuinely fascist government in Romania. I beg your pardon, in Hungary. Then comes 45 years right. of communism. It's a small country. It's only 6 million, as I recall, population. How you preserve your own sense of nationality, how you preserve your own language and culture when you're dominated by Russia on one side, the German economy, mm-hmm. it's, it's a trick. It's a and, trick. You're, and you're surrounded by that culture. I mean, it's a beautiful city. It has incredible wines. It's a, has a, 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 I think two great music schools, obviously a history of insanely beautiful music. The Danube, this is, it's the most beautiful city on the Danube, I think. And there's a, a mm. hillside where the Buddha side is and this beautiful city where the Pest side is. Um, the and they know, building is a staggering oh, thing. Right. Right. And they know they're being... Um, they know that people in the West, sort of the, the, you know, the, the academic left and the media left, um, will, uh, pay them no respect. And the problem ultimately is that sometimes everything's true. Sometimes it's true that they are not paid any respect, and sometimes it's true that uh, they are decent conservatives, and sometimes it's true that they have every right to be uh, a little bit ornery if they want. But it's also possibly true that Victor Orban's a crook and will be voted out and won't leave. Um, that and that will be a that will be a shame. That will be a shame if it happens. By the way, his 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 closest rival, I think, is no socialist. I think his closest rival is saying things like, "Hey, listen, I'm just like Victor, man. I'm uh, I'm as uh, t- tough as it as it comes, but I'm not a, a crook." And I think um, that's that will be a that will be a sign. I think anyway. All right, from hung, from Budapest to Speaking Washington decadent. to the Supreme Court to the Supreme Court, John. Finally, um, yeah. Well, okay. I mean, yeah, now we're here. You know, Rob's oh, in okay. Milan. He's in one of the great <laughs> cities of Western Europe. He's going on to help break the Danube River. This is in Budapest when he's in Milan. Well, I'll tell you. you know. I'll I'll tell you two things about the Dobbs case that surprised me. You can tell me whether I was right or wrong to be surprised, or you can just ignore me and go on and tell us what it all means. You mean like Here's usual. the first thing, as usual. Listening to the arguments, I was I was dumbfounded, honestly, that neither the lawyers making the case against Dobbs, against the Mississippi law, nor Justice Sotomayor, nor Justice Kagan, nor Justice Breyer, made any substantial argument for the constitutionality of Roe. They effectively granted all of them. They just granted by failing to make any argument on its constitutional argument on its behalf that Roe was a botched decision and Casey wasn't much better. Their entire argument, as far as I could see, rested on stare decisis. It's settled law. People have made their life decisions according to this law. Okay, let's not talk about the constitutional problems with it, but we've had it for almost half a century. We're stuck with it. And that didn't strike me as a very compelling argument. Second surprise, that the press immediately, both sides, immediately said, oh, clearly they're going to uphold Dobbs. The court has at least five votes to uphold Dobbs, or at least six votes to uphold Dobbs, and five votes to overturn Roe. Everybody, New York Times, Linda Greenhouse wrote a furious article in the New York Times, assuming on the basis of two hours of oral arguments that the court would uphold Dobbs. I've never heard people rely so heavily on oral arguments in predicting the court's decision. Okay, so those two were surprises to me. Oh, you're right, Peter, about the media. Um, I think they're grasping for any bits of information you can get, but you're quite right. Oral arguments can give you a hint about what's going to happen, but often they won't. I mean, if you listen to the oral arguments from Casey, <clears throat> which was the decision in 92 that upheld Roe, still the framework we're living under today, you would not have thought that Three justices would come together who were appointed by Republican presidents and say they were healing the land and standing up against politics and upholding Roe. That just didn't come through in oral arguments. So it's a good caution to always say, you know, the what happens behind closed doors with the justices, that might be completely different than what you saw 
right. Republic. We uh, should say that week. Starry Decisis is not a Greek stripper's name. <laughs> it, oh, don't be so it, sure about that. Okay, you know, you're, the not, one, you're the one who's <laughs> hanging out in Europe. Who knows what you're going to see in Milan it's, tonight? It's not, the, it's not only a Greek stripper's name, I should say. Um, <laughs> it's about precedent. And the idea being, it's, I mean, to me, I'm sure, the, I'm sure there's a better legal definition that you might give as a somewhat esteemed law professor. Um, <laughs> it feels to me like it's a, it's kind of the, 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 the escape hatch when you don't want to make an argument. You say, well, it's been decided, and then you kind of run the other direction, and you do that when you're worried that if you say it, that if you decide a case that upsets people, it, it upsets enough people, and it, it, with enough intensity, they're going to start to ask themselves why we have unelected nine people in black negligees sitting in a fancy uh, uh, building in D.C. making big decisions that, without any consequences to them. Is that, is that fair? Look, well, you don't, so your point ties in well with the Peter's first point, which is after 50 years of liberal judges and liberal theorists coming up with ways to defend Roe, this was the best you could do. <laughs> was, Weren't you surprised, yes, John? Yes, I was very surprised. Really no one defended Roe on abortion, right to abortion on the merits. Now you could right. say uh, the Constitution. decisis is the only argument that's going to appeal to conservatives right now that would allow uh, Roe to survive. But uh, this is the answer. If you're relying on stare decisis, you have you are conceding that the earlier decision was wrong. Right. Because if you Right. If your legal decision is right, then you don't need stare decisis. Right. It's just correct. Right. So the only reason you actually obey stare decisis is when you think the earlier case was wrong. So, so I, can I pitch a, 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 a reason to you that you tell me if I'm full of, full of it, right? Mm-hmm. That it was easier in the early in, – in 1971, I guess, 71, 72, to make an argument about viability and fetal development and to make all of those kind of credulous arguments – in 1971, that are, we, we all know are impossible to make 50 years later. Well, one thing that people have often pointed out, including many people right after Roe, even Justice O'Connor pointed this out too, and she eventually upheld Roe. She, she famously said Roe is on a collision course with technology. Yeah. Right? Because right. medical technology, it's two things. It has made the point of viability earlier, doesn't align with this trimester system anymore. Viability is now around maybe as low as 22 weeks into a pregnancy. But I think it's even more important culturally. Tech, medical technology has allowed us to see the development of a fetus using sonograms, where it's harder and harder to say, even before viability, that's not a human being. Right. When you see the right outlines of the baby, you see the baby moving around, more. reacting. Right. Once that sonogram grows on the grandparent's refrigerator, that's a right. baby. And, I mean, what what percentage do we – I mean, it's impossible to know. What how, what percentage of expectant parents in 1971 had seen a sonogram versus what percentage of expectant parents in in 2021 have seen a sonogram of, of their baby? And it seems to me that the, the, the latter number for 2021 is – Almost 100%. 100%, yeah. Versus and 1971 must be nothing. So it's, I think Senator Day O'Connor was correct. Um, we're going to come back to this because we're talking about technology. And you know using the Internet without ExpressVPN is like leaving your laptop exposed at the coffee shop table when you run to the bathroom. Yeah, I know it's the worst segue ever, but we're just going to keep – we're going to move forward. Just better than Lilas. As, as a fan of the yeah. show, better than Lilas. <laughs> oh, 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 wow. You're going to hear about that. Most of the time, you're probably fine without using an, exp- an ExpressVPN, but if you come out one day to find it's gone, you can only be so surprised. The same is true of the data on your laptop, not just your laptop yourself, but your data. Every time you connect to an unencrypted network at all of those public places we jump online, cafes, hotels, me, airports, me, any hacker on the same network can gain access to your personal data, passwords, financial details, and more. And it doesn't take a genius with a lot of technical knowledge to hack. Just some cheap hardware. It's all you need. A smart kid could do it. I bet you a dumb kid, too. Your data is valuable. Hackers make good money selling personal info on the dark web. And ExpressVPN creates a secure, encrypted tunnel between your device and the Internet and keeps those 
Dastardly hackers out, and it's so secure that even a hacker with a supercomputer would be stuck waiting over a billion years to get past ExpressVPN's encryption. With all that security, you'll be shocked at how easy it is to use. Just fire up the app, click one button, and you get protected. It works on all of your devices, allowing you to stay secure even on the go. I have been on the go for three weeks. ExpressVPN has worked seamlessly in airports, hotels, on a train, on an airplane. It is fantastic. And, you know, um, what happens if I like get, get hacked and then I'm on a plane? It's, it, I, I, can't, I cannot fathom the vulnerability of using my computer without ExpressVPN. You can secure your online data today by visiting expressvpn.com slash ricochet. That's expressvpn, all one word, dot com slash ricochet, expressvpn.com slash ricochet. You get an extra three months for free, expressvpn.com slash ricochet. We thank them for sponsoring the Ricochet Podcast. We thank them for an amazing product. We are joining now with another guest. We had to, we want, we... We needed to des- desperately need another guest because we, all we have is John, you, and who knows how that's going to go. But we're lucky to got Bjorn Lomborg back. He is the president of the Copenhagen Consensus, a visiting fellow at the Hoover Institution. His latest book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. And he is also Ricochet's top advisor on climate policy. He's here. Oh, I, hey, Bjorn, where, where are you? Where are you? Right now, I'm in uh, southern Sweden. Southern Sweden. Um, yes. So, did you go? Were you in Glasgow in, uh, a couple yeah, weeks ago? Yeah. Did, you, did they let yeah. you in? Uh, no, they probably wouldn't either. No. So, uh, <laughs> I, I, I've tried to go to several of these events, uh, and uh, and the guy who runs the media there uh, actually actively discourages uh, people from allowing me to get in there. Are you uh, serious? But, uh, wow. I, I, I managed to get there in uh, in 2015. I mean, look, COVID at least has made it, pos- made it possible for all of us to be virtually anywhere, right? Well, there you are right. in Sweden. Rob happens to be in Milan at the moment, Bjorn. <laughs> there you go. Yeah. Uh, so, so it feels like um, a whole lot of noise. Nothing happened except what we already knew was going to happen. To me, it felt like a Middle East peace summit where there's a lot of noise, and then at the end, there's only one issue that matters, and that issue is not resolved. If India and China say, we ain't going to play the game, what's the point of having a game It's a very little point, at least. Uh, So I I think there's two important facts one needs to recognize. Uh, You know, we've we've been doing this for a good 30 years. There's a reason why it was called COP26. We've done this 25 times before, and and we basically achieved almost nothing. So there's a very underreported report from the UN Environment Program uh, that did a survey of the last 10 years of climate policy. Uh, so from late 2019, just before COVID hit. And and what they basically find is for the last 10 years, despite all the promises, despite all these summits, despite we had a Paris agreement, they cannot tell the difference between a world where we had done nothing about climate since 2005 and the actual world we live in. And that, I think, tells you everything you need to know. That right. sure, you have lots of people talking, lots of great gains, but we've actually not seen any significant change for the last 15 years. Now, what they're talking about is obviously, oh, but we're going to do all this amazing stuff in 2030 and 2050, and Biden is promising that he will go, you know, make the U.S. go carbon neutral in in what amounts to what seven more presidents or potentially seven more presidents after him of course you can't make these sorts of promises and so in some sense we're just making theater to make everyone feel like we're we're doing something and it feels good even if the whole of the u.s went carbon neutral not in 30 years but today even then it would reduce temperatures by the end of the century by 0.3 degrees Fahrenheit or 0.16 degrees Celsius. You would almost not be able to notice it. And that gets back to your point, Rob, on the idea of saying, unless China and India 
and Africa and Latin America and all the people in the world, you know, so some six and ending up at eight or more billion people who actually want to get out of poverty, unless they're also on board with us, mm-hmm. it's not going to happen. And I'll tell you one amazing thing that happened in COP26. Uh, I don't know if you noticed, uh, you probably heard the first part of this. So the Chinese PM, uh, Modi, came to uh, 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 to Glasgow and the promised, Indian, yeah. the Indian yeah. uh, uh, prime minister promised yeah. to go net zero in 2070. Uh, and obviously a lot of people, oh, but that's too late and all that stuff. But of course, it's amazingly fast <laughs> right. if, if he's actually promising that. But what most people didn't report was he's only going to do that if the West is going to pay him a right. trillion dollars over the next 10 years. A trillion dollars. So I don't know, uh, have you seen Biden or anyone else put aside a couple hundred billion dollars in the budgets for the next couple of years to make that happen? So essentially, I mean, I think it was great theater play and he got exactly what Cup 26 was about. He said, I'm going to promise this if you guys are going to give me a ton of money. Uh, but the reality, of course, is nobody's actually going to come up with that amount of money. That's what we promised to give to the entire developing world, and we're not managing to do that. Right. So you have this situation where everybody in the West says, oh, we absolutely want to do this, but then realize very quickly that their voters actually don't like to be cold and poor. Uh, and so, you know, you have the ironic situation that Biden is calling OPEC as he's flying over to Europe. Uh, for the climate summit and asking them to pump more oil uh, to keep the oil price down. And you have the the vast majority of emitters who just say, no, we're not actually going to do this. Can I ask you a question about whether uh, COVID came up much during uh, COP26? Because uh, all these grandiose plans require a high level of cooperation between countries that don't trust each other, even if they wanted to do something about it. We're in the middle of a pandemic where China has still not told, told anybody about how did the virus get out, where you see rich countries arguably keeping a lot of the vaccine to themselves and not sending it off to third world, uh, developing, sorry, developing countries. So we're in the middle of a pandemic where people are dying by the thousands every day, right? It's much more real than global warming. And still you don't see any of these mm. countries, India, China, the, any of them cooperating. So why did people sit there in the middle of this pandemic and say, how can we think, these countries will trust and cooperate to cure some far-off, terrible future when they won't even solve the future, the mm-hmm. terrible present where people are dying right now. John, it's a, it's a great point. No, it didn't come up for the exact reason you might imagine, that nobody wants to acknowledge that. Another way of thinking about COVID did come up and has come up uh, a lot in the last uh, year. Uh, so if you actually want to cut the world's emissions, as most people promise and most politicians pretend that they're going to do, it is equivalent mm-hmm. to having one more lockdown like we had in 2020 every year. So remember in 2020, because the whole world locked down, we actually reduced emissions. We didn't <laughs> yeah. reduce emissions yeah. all that much. Uh, so we probably reduced emissions about 6% or so. And, and remember, this is something that most people absolutely didn't like. But, yeah, that's pretty pretty outstanding, 6%. But that's what you have to keep additional reducing every year. So in 2021, right. we have to do twice that. So we have to actually have twice as many lockdowns as we had or the uh, reduction equivalent of twice as many lockdowns as we had in 2020. Of course, we have no such thing. We'll probably end up very close to the uh, record level. In 2022, we have to have three times as much. By 2030, we have to have lockdowns equivalent to 11 times what we had in 2020. I don't know if anyone can actually realistically imagine that, uh, but the UN on their webpage still says, you know, on climate, they still say, you know what? The world almost made its promise to cut emissions in 2020. But we'll have to keep that up and keep doing more and more of right. it every year till 2030. Hey, Bjorn, and, and again, I think it just shows you how this is not plausible. Bjorn, I, I am trying to read the zeitgeist. First of all, I can't even pronounce the word correctly. But so, so you should take all this with a grain of salt. 
But I feel, I were, as you know, I'm at the Hoover Institution where you're a colleague of mine. We're right in the middle of the Stanford campus. There are smart kids around. I feel that a couple of things have happened. And one of them is that COP26 demonstrated that this, the environmental game as it is now being played, which begins COP, the first of these conference of parties, I just looked it up, the first meeting took place in 1992. That's almost 30 years ago. This is the old generation. The kids now, the kids don't view, the, you, you, you cannot work an environmental or economic revolution. You can't work a revolution of any kind on the basis of old men. And John Kerry and Joe Biden and a lot of the other figures who were trotting up to the trotting, hobbling up to the lectern to speak in Glasgow are just the other generation. I just have the feeling that the smart kids here just don't take it seriously, item one. Hmm. Item two, yeah. the other piece of it that I, I felt in the coverage, there was far more emphasis on research and in particular on nuclear research. Bill Gates popped up. There were a number of interviews with him around the time of COP26. It almost feels as though the press has figured out that these big, boring, hypocritical events aren't much of a story anymore. Even the press is figuring out that the interesting action is going to be research, technology, maybe nuclear. Now, that's me just sitting here in Palo Alto trying to figure out what's going on. But do you have any feeling? Did you sense those two changes yourself? I would love to say yes to that uh, question, because obviously <laughs> research is what's going to fix this problem. Uh, look, we've never solved a global big problem by immiserating everyone. We've never solved it by telling everyone, I'm sorry, could you eat a little less meat and drive a little less and be a little colder and be poor? Would that be okay for you? Uh, and, and especially, and, and we're also hoping everybody else will do this, and we need to do that for the next 50 years, and then maybe we can solve part of it. Not surprisingly, that's not actually going to win any votes. So you need research, you need innovation, that's how you're going to fix this. Unfortunately, uh, my sense is that actually everybody is doubling down on this. Oh, really? My read, and, and again, mm -hmm. uh, look, I, I, I think if, if you look at some of the research that have looked at a lot of young people, they find that very, very many of them feel like Greta Thunberg, uh, that this is the end of the world, that there's a real risk that they won't make right. it into adulthood or, or old age. And, and you, know, you can't blame them. If, if you read most of the mainstream press, the sense is it's one catastrophe after another, and it's right. just going to get worse and worse. And, so you're and telling me I can, I'm, I can wrong blame, I'm happy to blame them. I'm blaming but, them. I can but, blame them. Yeah, but I, I guess I, we're, we're, I guess I see uh, where some of the pressure is coming from. I mean, you know, you read magazines and newspapers, and it seems like it's a big crisis. But politically, where is it coming from? Whenever American voters are polled, you know, what is it? What did you care the most about? The environment's way down there, number ten. Um, if you add the people in India and the people in China and the people in the United States who don't really think this is an issue or they don't think it's a really big issue or they think it's a good a good lever to use against your business, your financial competitors, where where it, it sometimes it seems to me that all the people who believe that the world is ending were in Glasgow. Right. <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. Uh, but on the other hand, there's a lot of people that stand to make a lot of money there off of us. Right. Wow. Uh, so, okay. so yeah, uh, when Carney, the uh, ex-governor of the uh, uh, Bank of England, and also, I believe, the Bank of Canada, uh, told, um, told everyone, you know what? Finance is going to find $130 trillion for you. Uh, that's probably true if you can offer yeah. higher yields than those $130 trillion dollars. I think they would actually love to be able to invest in certain returns uh, guaranteed by states yes. for solar yes. and wind and other yes. kind of stuff. Right. Right. So there's a lot of people who are seeing this as an immense opportunity. At the same time, I, I honestly think that when, when you talk to a lot of these young people, uh, the, the feeling is, uh, I, I, I remember I saw some billionaire giving away lots of money to exactly to climate change because his kids were really worried. I think it gives them a lot of street credit. It just feels it yeah, feels like good. the right thing to do, yeah. which of course is why I keep saying, look, 
You can't just read all these stories and say, oh my God, it's just one catastrophe after another. You actually need to do the numbers. And we do have good numbers. So if you look at you know, the number of people that die from climate-related disasters, so that's floods, droughts, storms, uh, uh, wildfire, and extreme temperatures. We have good data for that for the world for the last 100 years. It used to be about half a million people that died every year in the 1920s. This year, in 2021, it'll be less than 7,000 people. So a reduction of almost 99%. Remember, at the same time, we've quadrupled global population. The world is not becoming a more dangerous place because global warming is just taking over. The world has become an incredibly more safe place, mostly because we've become richer, more right. resilient, more technologically able. And so anything that climate has thrown at us has certainly been thwarted in right. a grand way by our abilities. And what that tells you is the kids shouldn't be scared. They should actually be pretty, you know, optimistic. Yes, there's a problem with global warming. Yes, it's something we need to tackle along with a lot of other problems for this world. But it's not fundamentally a world that's sort of headed towards doom and end of uh, end of world. It's a problem like many others, but a world that's going in the right direction. How do we get that way? I mean, people are holding in their hands the most extraordinarily complicated technological device, their phone. And the richest guy in the world is Elon Musk, who basically, you know, invented an electric car. Um, he had a little help from the government, but really not as much as people uh, say. A lot of it was that was the negative help that the government gave the big automakers that that, that benefited him. Wh wh where does the blindness come from? Where does the pessimism come from, especially among younger people? I see that. I see the uh, younger people. I, 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 they, they are terrified of COVID. Young people, I mean, it's crazy how scared they are of COVID. Where does that come from? Whose fault is that? We, Fix that. We've always been worried about the future. So there's, uh, I, I did a piece for uh, New York Post and a lot of other papers on, on how we've always heard, you know, the world is just about to end. Uh, remember, uh, 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 um, Peter, you mentioned uh, how we almost started climate negotiations 30 years ago in 1992. Right. We had the first UN Environment Conference 50 years ago, or almost 50 right. years ago, right. in 1972 in Stockholm. <laughs> uh, and it's, always, it's always the Scandinavian country. I know, I know. It's Sorry always Sweden, uh, Stockholm. So the, the, the <laughs> organizer who went on to be the first head of the UN Environment Program back then said, we only have 10 years to avoid the catastrophe, right? And we've heard that ever since. And I'm sure, you know, there are these wonderful uh, stories about how old Babylonians worried about, you know, the end of the world just around the corner. So it's it's possible that it just, you know, it's it's in our genes. Partly, we're the guys who worried about saber-toothed tigers, right? Uh, and 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 we're the we're the ones who survived. Right. Uh, and, and so, in, in some sense, it makes sense. It's also why we love to watch those movies that, where they blow up the White House, right? I mean, it's, you know, where right. aliens blow up the White House. It's just so much fun to watch the end of the world. <laughs> and, and it's no fun to just watch the world slightly getting richer over the next hundred years and, and doing well. That, where's the drama in that? So, so in some sense, we're conditioned to think this way. But, of course, it makes us make really, really bad decisions because what really will help future generations is that we invested in technology yeah. in ability in learning of course they should go back to school these kids that are striking and then that we actually have capital so that they can help themselves right. i don't know if you saw um the un has been promoting this very very strongly that madagascar uh was the first climate induced uh drought and hunger catastrophe in the world uh, they've had a huge drought over the last couple of years uh, and, and now a new study actually came out and said, uh, no, no, it wasn't. It had nothing to do with climate. It does have a lot to do oh, right. with poverty. Uh, mm -hmm. you know, not surprising. It's terrible to be in Madagascar because you're really poor. And then whenever a drought happens, which sometimes it will, it's really, really hard. And what it tells you is if you constantly hear this is climate, you're likely to say, okay, the way I'm going to help these poor Madagascans is by not taking my car to work tomorrow, which, of course, is going to help them nothing at all. But what you should do is to say, I'm actually going to help them get out of poverty. Maybe we mm -hmm. should make sure that they can sell stuff in the U.S. and Europe at cheaper rates. 
That's the way to make them richer, make their kids better off, make sure they don't die from easily curable infectious diseases, get food and all the other stuff. This is not rocket science, but we forget this if we worry about the wrong thing. Can I say uh, just a small joke that we shouldn't be surprised millennials are millennial, right? They're, <laughs> they're millennial because they're born in the turn of this you know, millennium, millennium. But millennials, right? That, what's the original root of the term? It was people who thought the end of the world was coming, right? right? In, the, uh, in the old uh, Christian calendar. But, you know, one of those days, like a broken clock, they're going to be right. Yeah. <laughs> but it's because, but that's, isn't it because the, the deeper point is that it's because they don't have a religion. So they've replaced it with environmentalism. And environmentalism has all the it's similar yeah. attributes, right? The world is ending. You must well, live a certain strict way to prove right. your virtue to survive right. the end of the world, and on and on. And it has this kind of it's apocalyptic. You know, it doesn't have right. rationality to it. Yeah. So you can't but, but it I out. think we just need to recognize that it's not like the older guys have been better at this. We've also, you know, fallen entirely for that religion and and fallen very very hard since you, you remember, right. uh, uh, you know, running out of everything in uh, in 1972 uh, right. and onwards from from there on. Uh, you know. The world is just simply easy uh, uh, victims for this idea of say, take any trend, extrapolate it out 80, uh, 80 years, and then say, see, that's not going to go well. Die. <laughs> is it also <laughs> a sign of how wealthy our societies are? Because, you know, if you're in the middle of World War II or the Great Depression, you're not worrying about uh-huh. climate change. But when you have a very wealthy, so- affluent society and, yes. you know, in a network yeah. world where we can all talk, <laughs> right? Yeah. And, and, and there, of course, and, and I think that's one of the things that came out and, and, uh, of, of COP26 and where I've actually been somewhat uh, 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 happy about uh, people starting to realize that if you prevent especially poor countries access to cheap and available energy, and you know, uh, Museveni, the, uh, the uh, uh, president from Uganda, uh, wrote an op-ed in Wall Street Journal saying, look, we need lots of energy in order to pull out uh, 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 our populations out of poverty. If we start doing that, if we're so rich that we say, no, 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 everybody else can't be rich, right. uh, that could be the real tragedy. And I yeah. think that's where we need to really be careful that our virtue doesn't actually impede other people's opportunity of, of, of uh, getting out of poverty. How do liberals, um, how do they harmonize all their conflicting commitments? So what happens when uh, I think there's a suggestion last year. What happens when global warming runs into racial inequality? Or what happens when global warming has the effect of oppressing, in their minds, underdeveloped countries? Who, which value wins? Well, I think wishful thinking wins uh, because <laughs> what, what you end up with, and, and I see this all the time, people will say, Look at the cell phone revolution. We just skipped over the whole idea of having uh, landlines, right? Uh, and they've done that in the, in, in, in the developing world. So they can do that with fossil fuels and just skip right over fossil fuels and go to solar and wind. But there's a reason why almost every country in the world wants solar and wind. And I can tell you right now, we're realizing that in Sweden and elsewhere in Europe, because we're suddenly realizing we don't have enough wind. You don't have enough power, and you really re- risk having to shut down your uh, uh, your companies, and of course, pay huge costs for the backup power that's still there. Imagine if this has happened uh, uh, ten years later, when we had much less fossil fuel backup, we would basically be freezing, and nobody wants that. So the reality is, sure, you can have some solar and wind, and some of it actually a good idea, but having too much of it means that you are either incredibly rich, or that you don't care about having right. a secure supply. Hmm. Well, I, I wish I could uh, believe you that nobody wants us all to freeze. Sometimes sometimes it seems to me that a lot of people who were in Scotland a few weeks ago would love for us to freeze. Um, all right, Bjorn, before we go, the, the book is False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Causes Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. We'll put a link in the show notes. Also, uh, your Wall Street Journal column, uh, the most recent one, brilliant as always. And um, you, uh, I, you are my... I, here, here's how I you, here's the utility you provide for my life. I read it and then I'm, I I have ammunition to use in the arguments that I end up having about this. And so for that alone, you deserve the Nobel Peace Prize. Um, thank you for joining us. We'll see <laughs> you soon. You. We'll see you soon. Absolutely. Thank you, guys. It is true, isn't it? Like, don't you know when you, 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 you when you hear somebody who knows something about something, you 
Like I memorize this stuff so that I can throw it back. No, the point is that everyone can win the Nobel Peace Prize. There's no quali qualifications. <laughs> okay. But, <laughs> what I found is that when I quote a Scandinavian, Bjorn, when I quote a Scandinavian yeah. approvingly, that alone throws people off. It's just, oh, yeah, because they don't it's, really, yeah. It's wonderful. It's wonderful. That's good. Uh, before we continue uh, with our discussion with John Yu, let me just remind you that uh, it's the holidays, so that's all the sort of, um, you know, the sweets they're eating and the celebratory libations, all the sugary treats. Your mouth is going to put up with a lot this time of year. Treat yours to Quip's line of sleek, sustainable oral care products when you bundle and save up to 40% online through the holidays. Plus, by encouraging good habits, Quip products really are the gifts that keep on giving. The Quip electric toothbrush is loved by over 7 million mouths and has timed sonic vibration with 30-second pulses to guide a dentist-recommended two-minute clean. It's lightweight. It's sleek. It's got cool design for adults and kids. No wires. Bulky charger to weigh you down. A multiple-use travel cover that doubles as a mirror mount for less clutter. Reusable handles and a sleek and a range of sleek metal hues, including the best-selling All Black and All Pink, as well as bright plastic colors sure to make a pop to your bathroom counter. But beyond just the brush, Quip has a whole line of stocking stuffers for everyone on your list. Try their floss string that expands to clean or the reusable floss pick that replaces over 180 disposable picks with every refill. They've also got refillable gum that's sugar-free, has long-lasting mint flavor, and comes with a dispenser. And their refillable mouthwash is a four- uh, it's four times concentrate, so it's like takes up less time. You mix a little water, it's great. Um, in addition to brush heads, Quip also delivers fresh floss, toothpaste, mouthwash, gum refills every three every three months from five dollars. Shipping always free, so you can save money and skip the hassle of shopping in store during the holidays and into the new year. Even more good news: Quip is running their best deal of the year, which means you won't be paying through the teeth. Ha uh ha! -huh. When you gift better oral health care this year, it's a great gift. I did this last year, and I got um, a lot of really good positive feedback. So go to getquip.com slash ricochet. Do it again. Go to getquip.com slash ricochet right now. On top of their holiday seasons, you get your first refill free. That's your first refill free up to 40% off bundles. And get at getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P dot com slash ricochet, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P, all one word, getquip.com slash ricochet. Quip is the good habits company. We thank them for sponsoring the Ricochet podcast and also for giving me great gift ideas. Where were we, John? I was just going to say something about, think about oh, all the time sure. we spend on our teeth versus any other body part. It's amazing. But anyway, where we were before was we had just talked about what stare decisis was. And so we were making the point that, well, right, uh, you both are completely right. The amazing, maybe the dog that didn't bark, right, the Sherlock Holmes thing, the dog that didn't bark at the oral arguments was that no one put on a substantive defense of whether a woman has a right to abortion under the Constitution. And this may be because over the last 50 years, even very liberal scholars have come to recognize and even liberal judges have come to recognize yeah. there's no there there. And you could say the court has, in a way, turned its back on that logic of Roe. If Roe were right, then why don't we also give people the right to commit suicide? Why don't we recognize the right to euthanasia? And we are comfortable, and this gets to your other point, Rob, we are comfortable leaving to the political process right. most decisions about life and death. Uh, the, the death penalty itself is decided by the political process, state by right. state. And so that's the effect. There's this, I say, this is the second other message I think came, comes out of the oral argument. I hope people realize is that if Roe gets overturned, it doesn't mean abortion is banned throughout the country. It just means it goes back to the states for political decision by the people we elect to our state legislatures, just like most every life and death issue in our lives. Hey, John, so oral arguments took place on December 1st, five days ago. As I understand it, the decision is expected in June. The court tends to hold mm. the big decisions for relatively late. Mm. Uh, and I want to ask you what the process is, what happens mm. between now and then, mm. with one little yeah. note. And the little note is that a few years ago, as you know, John Roberts and I were friends in the Reagan White House a thousand years ago. You still, you still admit that in public. I'm still I'm willing impressed. to admit that in public. And I took <laughs> the kids to Washington. John happened to be, the chief happened to be out of town. But when you get a tour of the Supreme Court through the chief justice's office, you get a pretty good 
tour. And so yeah. we were shown the conference room and the conference table. And yeah. here's what stayed in my mind. By contrast with the president who's isolated in the White House, members of the Senate show up on the floor, they give their speeches, then they go back to their offices. Even in committees, they come in late, they sit there for a while. Republicans sit on one side, Democrats sit on the other. In the Senate and the House, people who disagree with each other can avoid each other. But that conference table is like a small dining room table. I know they all have their own chambers and that the Supreme Court is a big building, but when they come together in conference, it's just the justices and they're just seated around an ordinary table. They can't avoid each other. Okay, so what's the process? What happens? There's a lot of things uh, to say in response to your point. But the first one is my giving tours at the Supreme Court. It's one of the best jobs of being a clerk. <laughs> I got to give tours. This, I gave a tour to Quincy Jones. Wow. Is he a musician? Right? And then, uh, oh, but the best Wait a minute, one, you don't even know who Quincy Jones is? I mean, I don't listen to that stuff. It's in the, it's in the Wait, 20th century. Don't I, don't, I don't listen to anything. It literally is like 50 years of the 20th century, by the way. <laughs> Oh, yeah, but they use electric instruments, don't they? I, I, it's not for me. Anyway, I also, <laughs> but the best one, the best one was Charles Barkley. Oh, oh it's really? so great. I got, so did you show him the basketball show, court? Yeah, of course. I, I shot hoops with him at the court that sits Whoa. above the courthouse. And it was pretty good, even though I was talking a lot of smack. You know, because he was a 76er and I'm from Philly. So this was like a yeah. dream. This is a dream come true. It's like if I got to run the Philly special play with falls over and over again. Uh, so anyway, so this is great. So uh, as a, back then, you could give, you could show people a lot more than you can show them now on the behind-the-scenes tour. So uh, I had Charles sit in the chief justice's chair uh, you know, in the courtroom. I have to say he felt very comfortable in that chair. So anyway, he says, this is where he says, I, I have a, a question for you. I'm really curious about a legal question. So I said, sure. You know, Sir Charles, that's how everyone in Philadelphia addresses him. And uh, what is it? He goes, well, can you explain the death penalty to me? So being the <laughs> geeky young lawyer, I was like, well, even if you're convicted of murder, then there's only a few who get uh, you know, subject to death penalty. And there's this, there's this complicated second jury trial. Blah, blah, blah. I go on for about 10 minutes. He goes, no, you don't understand me. Why don't we give the death penalty to more people? <laughs> I was like, then I said, sir, you ought to run for governor of Alabama. You should sit in the Scalia chair. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, so then I took him on a tour. And here's another, this just tells you a little bit about the court of justices. So Charles Barkley, you know, he came to see Justice Thomas. The amazing thing is that somehow Justice O'Connor learned that Charles, who Charles Barkley was going to be in the building. Charles Barkley at this time played for the Phoenix Sun. Sure. Somehow Charles Barkley ended up not coming to Justice Thomas's chambers, but was diverted to Justice O'Connor's chambers, where a photographer from the Washington Post miraculously appeared and took a picture of Charles Barkley putting the star on top of Justice O'Connor's Christmas tree, which he didn't wow. need a chair or a ladder to do, and which somehow then appeared on the front page of the Arizona Republic the next day. Okay, then, so, now <laughs> so this, this is a segue so, into my <laughs> next question. Wait a minute, wait, 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 I, I didn't answer question. Peter's question. <laughs> so let me right. answer Peter's question really quickly. So the oral arguments take place on you know Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Then the justices meet around that little conference table on fr that Friday of that week. The amazing no aides, the justices of all the major so principals in Washington. Yeah, they they have not talked about the decision yet amongst themselves. Yeah, they've already met. They would have the decision's been made already. Three days ago, wow. we just don't know what it is. So, um, what happens? So the justices are, I think, of all the major players in Washington, are people who do their own work. Like they show up, no aides, no staff. They have, uh, they go in order of seniority, and they say. So the chief justice goes first, and I mean, I wish I could see this. And then Justice Thomas goes second, and it goes, and they say uh, to ex explain what they're thinking about the cases and how they're going to vote. And then when you get around to the end, I guess Amy Coney Barrett would be last. Then the chief justice, if he's in the majority, he assigns the opinion. If he's not, then Justice Thomas, who's the senior justice, assigns the opinion. The reason, it's not that the court holds the opinion all the way to the end of July. It's that the most controversial cases involve a lot of give and take. Because then the, 
Suppose right. Justice Thomas decides to write the opinion for five justices and Roberts is a majority, minority. He will write a decision, then he circulates it to the other four in his majority, to the whole court. But what he wants is other four to sign on. Right. And there's give and take in bargaining. A justice can say. But so can I? Uh, oh, go ahead. Sorry. Uh, I say, I just gotta, like, here's what I would say. Were I on the. Uh, the if you were one of the justices in the little row. Yeah. Upholding row. I would say I would be really super, super honest and blunt to the to the uh, the anti row faction. I would say if you do this, you'll bring it all down. That the court's going to be expanded. That we're going to remind people that this all goes back. The court itself goes back to a decision made by the court. Marbury versus Madison. There's nothing in the Constitution that says. Um, that the court should be the last word. It decided it was good last word. That we have a very delicate balance here, and if you do this, you're going to mess it up for everybody. And this is is that Justice Sotomayor made, gave a kind of a speech saying this? Yeah, the oral argument. Mm. And isn't that their only argument? Yeah, the pro. Well, I would have thought you could make a stronger argument, but they don't. You know, you could say, well, we upheld gay marriage. You know, we've been on this progression of reading certain unenumerated rights in the Constitution. Your side does it too with gun rights or free right. or money and campaign speech. Right? You can always make accusations. The other side does it too if you want. And uh, But the problem with this stare decisis argument I think that Justice Sotomayor made is how the hell would a justice of the Supreme Court know? How are they going to know what the politics are really going to be mm -hmm. in reaction to the decision? Right. right? You could have seen back maybe in 1973, the justices said, eh, we'll just decide this row thing. No big deal. No one will pay attention. It's not, right? They, how, how could they have predicted it would become the, maybe the defining issue of our domestic politics for 50 years? Right. You could see they're, they are but not good that, at politics. They should not be good at politics. They're judges. Right. So they should. I just say, isn't that the argument right there? Yeah, that is the argument. Which is that for, you don't know the politics. You're not supposed to know what the politics are. So just That's call what, it. That's what the so, that's what politics are for. Yeah, so just call it the way you see it. This is, I think, this is the Justice Thomas approach. You know, this is just give your best answer on what the Constitution means, and let the everybody, you know, let the politicians take care of the politics. Because, and here's the, this is, and this is your buddy, your classmate Brett Kavanaugh's point from oral argument, right? He said, "Well, let me give you a list of cases where the court was concerned or not about overturning precedent." Were they good ideas or bad ideas, right? Well, we upheld segregation <laughs> for a long time. Mm -hmm. Right. Is that a good use of precedent? Or, and the same argument, I, I got to think the arguments echoed defending uh, not overturning Plessy uh, sounded like they, because, oh, we right. need it for social stability. We don't want to upset right. politics. Right. We've got to keep right. the law stable. That's the same argument you would make for. Uh, if you were dissenting from Brown versus Board of Education, right? And right. Kavanaugh made that point quite well. It, well, and then he, what about Miranda? Why? Where did the court get Miranda from? A lot of people love Miranda now, but it meant overturning decades and decades of Supreme Court cases, which said there was no Miranda. So, yeah, I think his deeper point was that your point. How could justices know what the political reaction is going to be? And even if they did know, do we really right. want them to yeah. hedge? Their decisions right. because they worried about political blowback. Right. Can you just put a pin in that while I do the, the awkwardly do what James always does, which is to remind people that if they are ever wondered how their favorite restaurant consistently makes such delicious food, the short answer is they have the access. They have access to the right kitchen tools. Made in with Made In's professional quality cookware and kitchenware, anyone is capable of making restaurant quality food at home. Made In produces professional quality cookware for those who love to cook. They source the finest materials and partner with a renowned craftsman to make premium kitchen tools available directly to you without the markup. I actually know a bunch of chefs who use this stuff. I use this stuff. It's great. Made In products are made to last and they offer a lifetime guarantee. Their cookware distributes heat evenly, can easily go from the stovetop to the oven. They have 40,000-plus five-star reviews, and their products are used by some of the world's best chefs at Michelin-starred restaurants around the world. Made in. It's better cookware for better meals. 
uh, as I said, I have a bunch of their stuff. It's it's really 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 great. Um, it's uh, I, it's surprising that no one did it before, but they they certainly did it. Right now, Made In is offering our listeners fifteen percent off your first order with promo code Ricochet. This is the best discount available anywhere online for Made In products. They make great gifts. So go to madeincookware.com slash ricochet and use promo code ricochet for 15% off your first order. That's madeincookware.com, M-A-D-E-I-N-C-O-O-K-W-A-R-E.com slash ricochet. Use promo code ricochet. We thank Made In for sponsoring the Ricochet Ricochet podcast, but we also thank them for making a terrific, terrific saucepan. John, in the last Law Talk podcast, you and Richard Epstein both predicted that the court would not overturn Roe, but would uphold Dobbs by adjusting what viability means. That is to say that the chief would hold together a majority, chief justice would hold together a majority for an incremental decision that split the difference, upholding Roe and Dobbs. Is that still your prediction, or did the oral arguments change it? Nah, I was wrong. <laughs> unlike, unlike Richard Epstein, I'm willing to admit I'm wrong. Wow. wow. I, can, I, I'm, I can often be wrong. <laughs> well, you know, I thought that what would happen is that Kavanaugh is really the fifth. He's the controlling vote, I think. I think he's got four sure votes to say Roe oh, has sure. no basis in the Constitution. So Kavanaugh, you know, if he goes along with the Chief Justice, Chief Justice Roberts was floating this proposal uh, to harmonize, the, you know, the Mississippi law with Roe. Essentially, it would throw Roe out, but still preserve some right to an abortion. The funny thing, this goes to Rob's point about why they keep pressing on stare decisis all the time. The liberals that should have rushed to embrace this compromise, mm-hmm. and they wouldn't. They would not. They just kept saying stars. They were absolutists. They said, you have to preserve Roe. What Roberts did was he said, well, what's this viability line anyway? He sounded to me like George Costanza. There's this episode about George Costanza and Seinfeld where he wants to name his kid Seven. You remember this? So funny. I thought, he's like, I don't want to name a kid a normal name. I'm just going to name him Seven. Seven. It's great. Roberts kept going, why 20? Why not 15? 15 is a good number. Let's make it 15 weeks. Why? His point is, let's just toss out viability and just pick a week. Fifteen weeks sounds good, just like seven sounded good to George Costanza. It has no principle. Again, easier to do in 1971 than it is in 2021. Well, you know, it's uh, he could make a claim that uh, states should be allowed to find that even before viability, there's humanity in the fetus. And so how do we find that? Well, states draw the line. They think it's around 15 weeks now. Mm-hmm. So before 15 weeks, Roberts was saying, then we'll still keep Roe and Casey. After 15 weeks, states can start to regulate more and more. He he mentioned this at least two times, if not three times, in oral argument. You would have thought Kig and Bry or Sotomayor would have left okay. for that life preserver. Yeah. But no, instead there was this like, you can't overturn Roe. It's precedent. It's far decisive. They, so <coughs> nobody, so nobody, Kavanaugh, okay, nobody yeah. it, it just sort of yeah. died in court, didn't it? Nobody. nobody yeah, so the thing that was remarkable, so the, if there's two remarkable things from the oral argument. One is no one defended Roe on the merits. The second one was Kavanaugh came out pretty much saying, I don't really believe in stare decisis that much, at least not for really important issues. He said, it wasn't really a question. He just said, here's a list of opinions. Right. That we overturned and everyone knew and realized it was great, starting with Brown versus Board of Education overturning Plessy. Right. Uh, if that's the big news, that's what changes my view about how the court will come out. So, so you think so your money is now, of course, the opposite after you were humiliated by your wrong prediction. Your <laughs> prediction right now is. Uh, I think Rose going to be overturned. I think it'll be five to four. And I think. Either Justice Thomas or Justice Kavanaugh will write the opinion, and I think uh, you'll have Chief Justice Roberts probably going along with the three liberal justices in dissent. That's wow. I, I, I expect a much more radical uh, outcome than I did before the oral argument, just from what I was hearing. Amazing. All right. Well, listen, we, we I mean, it's a long wait. We got to wait for it's like the worst Christmas present ever. Got to wait till June. Last week um, of June. 
and and uh, you know what we'll this be means. Watching, and then this means we're going to have to have me back. We're going to have to have, 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 have me back. back. Special <laughs> edition, a special <laughs> edition of Ricochet recorded that day. Well, we also have to do the gun. You know, there's a New York gun cases case. Yeah, also yeah. Come we're going to have you back. Yeah, it's like all right, maybe a couple weeks. I don't know. You. you this was no, fun. Let's think it over. It's Rob. good to have him with us, right? Well, yeah, I'm not feeling. I'm, I'm emotional right now. I'm overseas. I um, want to be the fourth wheel on your tricycle. <laughs> <laughs> this podcast was brought to you by ExpressVPN, Quip, and Made In. So please support them for supporting us. They really do support us. And you can support us by joining Ricochet today. You'll love it. It's the club that wants you to join, and you will be uh, a happily, happily a member. I promise you, Ricochet. In fact, I think it's we're doing a free thing, so I think it's even free. If you join it, you get first, you get thirty days free. You can check it out. You can kick the tires, and if you like it, you can uh, you can sign up. Uh, take a minute, if you would, to leave a five star review on Apple Podcast. That helps us keep our ranking, which is important for new listeners. That is the way the media world goes. If you like what we do here, um, that is a very, very, very good way to help keep us in business. Um, John, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. You know, it's my great ambition to nudge one of you aside and take over. Yeah, I don't think you're going to have to nudge that hard. Uh, uh, <laughs> just, just nudge me. Um, we'll see uh, you. I know we'll see you very soon. We'll see James in a week. And Peter, you and I will see each other in a week. Well, where will you be? Are you ever going to deign to return to America? I am deigning. I'm returning uh, on Wednesday. On Wednesday. Can he, can, he, can he pass the one-day COVID test that, that uh, yeah, Biden I had a, put in place when you were out of the country? No, I had to organize all that. I had to organize all that today. I'm like, oh my, yeah. So one, I thought three days was the PCR. So clearly, it's an antigen test for one day. Having been in Milan myself a month ago, and oh, yeah. also understanding the Italian bureaucracy, you could hand write on a piece of paper that you yeah. have the vaccine test, and everyone could read it. Yep. They had so far they had it across like crinkle pack of yeah. cigarettes, mm-hmm. and a tiny little cup of coffee. <laughs> um, all right, fellas, see you soon. <laughs> okay, boys. Bye. Next week. Next week. Conversation.